Welcome to the Three P's of Cancer podcast, where we'll discuss prevention, preparedness, and progress in cancer treatments and research. Brought to you by the University of Michigan Rogel Cancer Center. I'm Scott Redding. We're here with Michigan Medicine Genetic Counselor, Karen Milliron of the Rogel Cancer Center's Breast and Ovarian Cancer Risk Evaluation Team to discuss BRCA gene mutation and what to consider if you have a family history of breast or ovarian cancer. Welcome, Kara. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. I really enjoy this podcast, and I'm so um, proud and happy to, that you asked me to be a part of it. Can you tell us what exactly is BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene mutation? Sure, absolutely. So we have about 20 to 30,000 genes that are the instructions for our growth and our development. And we get one of each copy from our mom and one of each copy from our dad. And BRCA1 and BRCA2 are two genes that we all have, and they are tumor suppressor genes. So their role in the body is to make sure that the cells grow at a very specific amount of time at a very specific rate. So they act like a brake on a car. When there is a change or a mutation in BRCA1 or BRCA2, those genes don't work properly, and that's where we see an increased risk for developing cancer. Obviously, this gene, you said, part comes from mom, part comes from dad. So everyone is potentially has this gene mutation in them, or how, how is it determined sure. on that? Yeah, let me um, expand on that a little bit more. So we all have BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. In most individuals, they work just the way that they're supposed to. And, you know, they work very hard um, to prevent cancer from developing in our body. In the general population, it's estimated that around 1 in 400 to 1 in 500 will carry a mutation in BRCA1 or BRCA2. And the, these individuals, because they carry a mutation, that gene doesn't work properly and they have an increased risk for developing cancer. Now, in certain populations, such as individuals of Ashkenazi Jewish descent or um, Jews from Central and Eastern Europe, um, about one in 40 will carry a mutation in BRCA1 or BRCA2. So there is some population frequency differences, what we call carrier frequency differences. But most individuals have no mutations in either their BRCA1 or their BRCA2 genes. How do you know whether you have that mutation? Should Is there some sort of a test? Should everyone be tested for this at some point? Or how, how is it determined? I think that that's the, the crux of the issue that we, we always talk about when we're talking about cancer. So we know that about Oh, 5 to 10% of breast cancer cases and probably upwards of 20% of ovarian cancer cases are due to gene changes that are passed on in the family. So it is a small proportion, but there are some clues that we may be dealing with an inherited susceptibility in the family. So the first step is to know your family history. And when we say know your family history, try to go back three generations. So that goes back to your grandparents. Um, and as a genetic counselor, some of the clues that we look for in the family history are one, a young age of diagnosis of cancer. And so we define young as under the age of 50. Um, we also look for rare types of cancer. So for example, ovarian cancer in a family. Ovarian cancer is a rare cancer. One out of 70 women will develop ovarian cancer in their lifetime. Now, when I say ovarian cancer, I am lumping in also um, fallopian tube cancer and primary peritoneal cancer. So 
more of what we call pelvis serous cancers, so cancers of the peritoneum, um, the ovary, and the fallopian tube. We sort of lump those all together. Um, male breast cancer is a very rare cancer, and when we see that in the family history, it makes us be a little bit concerned about an inherited susceptibility. When we see pancreas cancer in a family, that again is a rare cancer. So that gives us some concern about inherited susceptibility. Um, when we see breast and ovarian cancer in the same individual, um, when we see a rare type of melanoma called ocular melanoma, that makes us a little bit concerned about an inherited susceptibility. And so there are some clues that we see in the family history that make us a little bit more suspicious that there may be um, a gene change that's being passed on in the family. Um, certain types of breast cancer also may be associated with an inherited susceptibility to cancer. So um, when a woman is diagnosed with what we call triple negative breast cancer or breast cancer that's not driven by estrogen, progesterone, or HER2 new. Um, so when they look at those three markers in the woman's breast cancer, they're all negative. So that's why it, it gets the name triple negative. Anytime a woman is diagnosed with breast cancer under the age of 60 that, and that breast cancer is triple negative, that woman should be offered um, genetic testing um, because um, there is a tendency um, towards triple negative breast cancer in inherited susceptibility with BRCA1 and BRCA2. So when we've, you've covered a lot of different cancers there, but lots of times when we hear BRCA1 and BRCA2, it's primarily breast and ovarian. But you know, again, you rattled off pancreatic cancer. Yeah. You know, are there are there other cancers that that need to be aware of, or is is almost any cancer affected by this gene mutation? So I think that you hit on a very important topic that we need to make sure that the public is aware of. You know, so much of BRCA1 and BRCA2, we focus on breast and ovarian cancer, but these two genes have been linked to other cancers. And men in particular are somewhat forgotten um, with regards to these two genes because the cancer risks or the cancer burden is lower in men, but it does have significant consequences if a man does carry a BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene mutation. And what I mean by that is that men who have a BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene mutation, they have a higher risk for developing prostate cancer, and those prostate cancers may be more aggressive. I also, you know, look very closely in the family history to see if there's any um, family history of prostate cancer, um, especially those aggressive prostate cancers with a Gleason score of seven or over. Um, and in fact, now they're recommending that any man who has a prostate cancer that's over a Gleason score 7, that they consider um, genetic testing for BRCA1 and BRCA2. And of course, if any man has metastatic prostate cancer, they also meet guidelines to offer BRCA1 and BRCA2 testing. So I really think that, you know, we need to expand the focus beyond breast and ovarian cancer because if you have a family where there's not a lot of women and the gene mutation is being passed on through the dad side of the family, sometimes those families can be missed because we're focusing so much on breast and ovarian cancer that we don't pick up the clues of the prostate cancer or um, the uncle with pancreas cancer or you know, the uncle that had no cancer diagnosis, but their children may have had you know, very aggressive prostate cancers. So you know, we really need to make sure that we look at 
both sides of the family and that we look at three generations. So looking at grandparents, parents, aunts and uncles, and also cousins. You mentioned metastatic cancer. Mm -hmm. um, if you initially get diagnosed with an advanced or metastatic cancer, is that an automatic that you should be considered for testing or does it depend on just because whatever reason that it was, you know, maybe you ignored signs early on and you just let things go or, or so forth. How, how is it determined based off of the metastatic diagnosis to get the, the testing? That's a really good question. And so the National Comprehensive Cancer Network guidelines, which the University of Michigan Rogal Cancer Center is part of the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, the guidelines for offering BRCA1 and BRCA2 testing are for any individual who has a metastatic cancer that falls into the BRCA1, BRCA2 spectrum. So if a woman has metastatic breast cancer, if a man has metastatic breast cancer, um, it should be offered to them. Um, if a, a woman has papillary serous ovarian cancer, fallopian tube cancer, or primary peritoneal cancer, she should be offered testing. If a man has metastatic prostate cancer, if a man or a woman has um, pancreas cancer, it should be offered to that individual. And the reason behind that is, is that BRCA1 and BRCA2 um, related cancers, they tend to respond to a certain medication called a PARP inhibitor. And so in some instances, we use the genetic testing not only to inform the family about potential cancer risks, but it also can drive treatment decisions. And I think that this is a really important point because so many times when individuals are diagnosed with cancer, the first thing that they say to me is, well, it's a moot point. I already have cancer. Why would I you know, undergo genetic testing? And there's two reasons to talk about that. Actually three, now that I think about it. One is that if they, if they don't have metastatic cancer, it potentially could give us information about future cancer risks um, and help us you know, tailor a cancer screening plan that is better fit for them and make sure that you know, we don't miss anything. Also, if they have metastatic disease, it can potentially drive treatment decisions. But three, and I think that this is the point that is somewhat lost in the general population when we talk about genetic testing for inherited susceptibility to cancer. So genetic testing in some instances, like cystic fibrosis, Tay-Sachs disease, Down syndrome, you know, those are genetic conditions where there's only one or two ways that an individual can be at risk for those genetic conditions. And so we can test someone and we can say yes or no very, very quickly. Cancer is really complex genetically, and there are genes that we know about and genes that we don't know about. And so when we're thinking about genetic testing for inherited susceptibility to cancer, we try to start testing with a cancer survivor. And the reason for that is, is that we're trying to determine if any of the genes that we know about are contributing to that cancer that we see. And so we try to start with someone who has a cancer diagnosis. And that is something that is somewhat difficult for people to understand because there's so much information out there about genetic testing being yes or no. And while in many cases that's true, it's not the same with um, inherited susceptibility to cancer genetic testing. Now, that being said, sometimes the cancer survivor is not available to us. You know, they may have passed away or 
they may not want to know. And of course, the right to not know about, you know, genetic testing information is a, something that, you know, we as healthcare providers, we must respect. But in that situation, since we don't have that individual, we can test people who don't have a cancer diagnosis. And we do that all the time. It's just that, you know, sometimes we have to be a little bit cautious in how we interpret those test results because we haven't been able to compare them to someone who has a cancer diagnosis. Now, if we test someone who has a cancer diagnosis and we find a mutation in a gene, we can then test other family members specifically for that um, gene mutation. And we can say very conclusively, yes or no, who is at risk. And so that's another reason to start with someone who has a cancer diagnosis, because if we find something, we can then do what we call cascade testing, which is test other family members for that specific gene mutation. And in that situation, it's a very clear cut yes or no, because we, we know where to look, we know what is contributing to those cancer cases in the family. And I think that that's also a point that is somewhat lost about inherited susceptibility to cancer genetic testing, is that if we find a mutation, yes, we can find individuals who are at increased risk who need increased screening, but we can also find people who are not at increased risk and we can save them from all of that additional screening. And so that is also a big public health win. You know, we focus so much on increased screening, but we also can, can identify those that don't need it. And so we can better use our healthcare dollars. Obviously high profile people have had the testing done for their own reasons. Can you talk more about why maybe some might go down the path of preempt having preemptive surgeries as it relates to the diagnosis and is that necessary if a younger person a family member um, does have the the testing done and does find out that they have the mutations so it's very personal and i think that that is the number one thing that we try to share with patients when they come for an appointment is that there's no right or wrong answer. It's just whatever you feel is the most appropriate for you. So when we have someone who is what we call unaffected or meaning that they don't have a cancer diagnosis, you know, recommendations are different for men and for women, but let's say we have a, a woman who does not have a cancer diagnosis, but test positive for a BRCA1 or a BRCA2 gene mutation, and they're wondering what are the appropriate next steps for them. So there are three main pathways that I think patients should know about. And again, just emphasizing that there's no right or wrong answer, it's just whatever feels the most appropriate for them. One is increased screening. And so when a woman has a BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene mutation, the increased screening for breast cancer is a mammogram and a breast MRI done yearly. Now, some individuals, they have those staggered every six months. Some institutions do the mammogram and the breast MRI at the same time. Um, there's no evidence that one way is better than the other. It's just really important to have the mammogram and the breast MRI done once a year. Whether that's done at the same time or whether that's staggered every six months is very institution dependent, but the most important thing again is to have that screening done once a year. And then also a breast exam by a healthcare provider every six months. Now, some women feel very comfortable with that. Um, some women say, you know what, I'm not comfortable with that. I want to think about additional steps. And so they may consider breast cancer chemo prevention. 
Um, and that's taking a medication to reduce the risk of developing breast cancer. And I think the word chemo prevention is a really bad word because, you know, women think, oh my gosh, it's like taking chemotherapy. I'm going to lose my hair. I'm going to have all of these side effects. And that's not really the truth. It is a medication um, that you do take for several years, um, but it it's very different from chemotherapy. And I think it's really important to have that discussion about the pros and cons and what to expect um, with a specialized healthcare provider. And when we look at breast cancer chemo prevention, um, you have to be at least age 35 um, and finish with family planning before you can consider taking a medication to reduce the risk of developing breast cancer. We typically offer tamoxifen to women who are premenopausal and tamoxifen has been used for a long time to actively treat breast cancer. And in fact, a lot of our advances in reducing mortality from breast cancer have been because of tamoxifen. But um, since about 1998, we've used tamoxifen in a preventive setting for high-risk women. Um, and that includes women who have BRCA1 and BRCA2 gene mutations who do not have a breast cancer diagnosis. Now, there is a little bit of controversy regarding breast cancer chemo prevention um, for women who have a BRCA1 gene mutation. And the reason for that is, is that when you look at the majority of breast cancers that are associated with BRCA1, the majority are not driven by estrogen. Um, a small proportion are, but the majority are not. And tamoxifen really reduces the risk of developing breast cancers that are driven by estrogen. So the BRCA1 mutation carriers there is some controversy about the benefit of chemo prevention in, in those women. However, there are studies that have shown that there may be a benefit. Now, BRCA2 breast cancers, um, it's different. Um, the majority of breast cancers associated with BRCA2 are driven by estrogen, and so breast cancer chemo prevention may reduce more breast cancers in the BRCA2 patient population. Now, if someone is postmenopausal and has a BRCA1 or a BRCA2 gene mutation, we have other medications that we can consider. For example, um, a drug cousin of tamoxifen called raloxifen or um, an aromatase inhibitor. So we, we have different options. But the most important thing to keep in mind is that a woman has to be over the age of 35 and finish with family planning because these medications, um, they do cause birth defects. And so, you know, you have to make sure that you know, you're finished with family planning. Of course, if you're postmenopausal, you are definitely finished with family planning. But if you're premenopausal, you know, that is something to, to consider. Some women feel that that is just not the road that they want to take, and they really feel that prophylactic or risk-reducing bilateral mastectomy. And this is a very, very personal, personal choice. It has been shown to reduce the risk of developing breast cancer by about 90 to 95%. So it's a very significant risk reduction and it reduces the risk of developing breast cancer to below that of the general population. However, if you look at the statistics of the women who choose increased screening with mammogram and breast MRI, and the women who choose risk-reducing or prophylactic bilateral mastectomy, there is no difference in the chance of passing away from breast cancer between those two groups. So that is something that I think is very important for patients to know and to understand. Now, if the goal is to never develop breast cancer, then clearly having the risk-reducing or prophylactic bilateral mastectomy, that is a very significant risk reduction. But 
if you look at the chance of passing away of, from breast cancer, there's no difference between the screening group and the surgical group. But, you know, a lot of times when we look at BRCA1 and BRCA2 gene mutations, they have devastated the family and they have seen relatives, you know, that have had to go through significant treatment, significant, you know, morbidity from their breast cancer diagnoses. And so, you know, that plays a big role in decision making, experience with cancer, family dynamics, um, cultural issues, religious issues. And so it's a very, very personal, personal decision. When we look at ovarian cancer, we just don't have good screening for ovarian cancer. And I think that that is something that is so frustrating. You know, I've been a genetic counselor for 22 years, and that is the only thing that has not changed about my job, is that we still do not have a screening tool for ovarian cancer that works. We can use a CA125 blood test and a transvaginal ultrasound, and we can do that yearly or every six months. But it has not been shown to find ovarian cancer at early, more treatable stages. And so for a woman who has a BRCA1 gene mutation, we usually talk about having the ovaries and the fallopian tubes removed between 35 and 40. And then for a woman who has a BRCA2 gene mutation, we usually talk about having the, um, the ovaries and the fallopian tubes removed between 45 and 50. So there's a little bit of a, an age difference about when that surgery is recommended between the two genes. This surgery, um, depending on which research article that you look at, um, reduces the risk of developing um, ovarian cancer and fallopian tube cancer between 80 and 95 percent, depending on which patient population you look at and which research article you look at. But the risk reduction is very significant. And I think that that's something that is really important to talk about because when we look at the ovarian cancer risks, when a woman has a BRCA1 gene mutation, their lifetime risk for developing ovarian cancer is between 20 and 40% in some studies and between 20 and 60% in some studies. General population risk is about one to 2%. Um, so it's a pretty significant jump in risk. When you look at breast cancer risk um, with BRCA1 and BRCA2, again, depending on which study you look at, the lifetime risk ranges anywhere from 55 to 85% over a woman's lifetime. General population risk is about 12%. So these are not options that women take lightly. And I think that it's something that is very much misunderstood because if someone has not had a BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene mutation in their family and they see some of the decisions that women are making, they may think that those are just very drastic and, and not appropriate. And unfortunately, you know, given the risks for developing cancer, some women feel that this is their most appropriate decision. And again, it's very, very personal and it's a decision that we must be respectful of. When we look at ovarian cancer, we do have some prevention options. One of them is um, birth control pill use. We know that in high-risk women, um, birth control pill use for at least five years may aid in reducing the risk of developing ovarian cancer. So if a woman is under the age of 35 with a BRCA1 gene mutation or under the age of 40 with a BRCA2 gene mutation um, and they haven't used birth control pills 
um, or they've only used birth control pills for a short time and they are not wanting to pursue having their ovaries and their fallopian tubes removed, we can talk about birth control pill use. That, of course, has to be adjusted with, you know, their breast cancer risk. So, you know, that's a, a conversation that, you know, we have to have. There's some evidence in the general population that removing the tubes may help reduce the risk of developing um, fallopian tube cancer and ovarian cancer. Um, however, in BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutation carriers, um, you know, it's still not known if just removing the tubes and then having the ovaries removed at a later date shows the same amount of risk reduction as if someone has ovaries and fallopian tubes removed at the same time. So there's a lot of data out there about, oh, just have your tubes removed and then have your ovaries removed at a later date. And I think it's really important to share with the listeners that that is still something that is under investigation in clinical trials, and we have no data in BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutation carriers that that is safe. So hopefully that data will be available at some point, but we are several years away from that data being available. For men who have a BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene mutation, they're at increased risk for prostate cancer. And so we do talk about prostate cancer screening. And there's a lot of debate in the general population um, that if we should be offering prostate cancer screening to men, but there's no debate with men who carry a BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene mutation. The prostate cancers associated with BRCA1 or BRCA2 can be more aggressive, and we can see them at younger ages. So we do talk about prostate cancer screening with at least a PSA and a digital rectal exam yearly, starting um, between ages 40 and 45. Now, the University of Michigan Rogal Cancer Center is very lucky to have um, a prostate cancer risk assessment clinic, um, and that is a very, very needed clinic because, again, you know, so many times men are somewhat forgotten in the BRCA1, BRCA2 picture. And this is a wonderful resource where we can refer men who have an increased risk for developing prostate cancer because they have either a BRCA1, BRCA2, or another gene mutation and other genes that are associated with an inherited susceptibility to prostate cancer. Or they have a very strong family history where we're, we have not been able to identify um, the gene that is contributing to that um, excess of prostate cancer in that family. And this is a clinic that will follow these gentlemen and will also do the screening. And there may be clinical trials for new types of imaging to detect prostate cancer at early, more treatable stages. And so this is a wonderful resource for us. We also, for men and women who have a BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene mutation or another gene mutation that is associated with an increased risk for pancreas cancer, we do have the option of pancreas cancer screening. And that is very specialized, and we refer to our colleagues in gastroenterology to discuss pancreas cancer screening. It is not considered standard of care, but it is something that um, we can offer um, and we want patients to have that discussion with a specialized physician so that they can make the choice about whether or not that makes sense for them to pursue. Sometimes patients will go and have the discussion with our colleagues in gastroenterology and say, you know what, this is not for me. And sometimes they'll go and have the discussion and they'll say, you know what, I feel really strongly that I want to consider the screening. And so I think that that's a, a discussion that's really important to have. 
And then of course with BRCA1 and BRCA2, there may be an increased risk for colon cancer. And so we also refer to our colleagues in gastroenterology to modify the colon cancer screening regimen, you know, whether a colonoscopy should be done every five years as opposed to every 10, or if, you know, depending on findings um, from the colonoscopy, should we modify how often that colonoscopy is being done? Being that this is based off family history for the testing, if a younger patient, male or female, gets diagnosed with one of the BRCA gene mutations and they are in their late teens, early 20s, mm -hmm. should there also be a conversation around fertility preservation and, for, and fertility uh, options for those patients due to some of these potential preventive measures could affect that family planning type aspect as they get older? Absolutely. And that is something that is really, really important to discuss um, with these individuals. And I think in the past, that was something that was very much ignored. It also possibly could be because we just didn't have the technology that we that we have now. But, you know, that is something that is really important to discuss. Also, with BRCA2 and in certain mutations in BRCA1, there is a risk for having a child with a genetic condition called Fanconi anemia if their partner has a BRCA2 gene mutation or a specific BRCA1 gene mutation in a specific area of the BRCA1 gene. Um, Fanconi anemia is a very serious genetic condition. Individuals with Fanconi anemia they have um, short stature, they have a very small head size, what we call microcephaly. They may have thumb abnormalities, but more importantly, they have profound bone marrow problems. Um, and these children are at risk for developing leukemia and lymphoma. And so if it would have an impact on their reproductive decision-making, you know, there is the option of, pre, of prenatal genetic diagnosis, PGD, and in vitro fertilization. And so we do have very wonderful colleagues in reproductive endocrinology that we refer these patients to to talk about those options, whether or not they want to consider freezing um, gametes um, or freezing embryos or you know, whether or not they want to consider pre-implantation genetic diagnosis in the future, or, you know, whether or not they choose to not have children and build their family in a different way. And I think the most important thing that we can say is that we are non-directive. We give the patient all of their options, and we certainly do not tell anybody whether or not they should have children. That is not our role in any way. Um, what our role is, is to make sure that patients have all of the information in front of them so that they can make the right choice for themselves. You touched on it a little bit when you were talking about the prostate cancer mm -hmm. uh, side of things with clinical trials. Are there clinical trials and or lab research that's happening around BRCA gene mutations and ways to uh, either come up with preventive or treatment options for patients that have cancers that have come from those mutations? Very much so. And I think that, you know, the University of Michigan Rogel Cancer Center is one of the leaders in the nation with regards to that research. And one of the things that you know, we can also help patients is that if they are interested in that, you know, we can help them identify clinical trials here at the University of Michigan 
um, that they may qualify for. And so that's another reason why sometimes individuals will pursue genetic testing. And those clinical trials may not just be for individuals who have cancer, it, it may be individuals who participate in novel screening tools, or they may participate in um, prevention trials. And so I think it's really important for people to understand that clinical trials are not just for people who have a cancer diagnosis, that there's a lot of trials that are looking at prevention and how to, how to reduce cancer risk, but also how do I, screening trials, how to identify cancer at its most early treatable stages. And we have all types of clinical trials here at the University of Michigan. Well, Kara, I really appreciate the time. As we wrap up, if there is one key message you would like people to take away from this talk today, what, what would that be? I think it's really important to know your family history. And if you have any questions about your family history, I think it's really important to talk to that matriarch or that patriarch in the family to get that information down while they're still with us. One of the things that I profoundly regret in my own personal life is that, um, you know, my paternal grandfather was one of 10 and he was, uh, he had 10 children. Um, so my dad was one of 10 and his dad was one of 10. And my paternal grandfather passed away when he was 105. And I think we sort of got lulled into this sense that he was going to live forever because he literally was living forever. And I, you know, I miss him tremendously. You know, he was an engineer on the railroad um, for um, Ann Arbor line, and he saw so much of Michigan history. And I really wish that I had taken the time to sit down with him and get his story and his family's story. And so I would strongly encourage individuals to do that if they have, you know, that individual available. Of course, you know, sometimes people are adopted and they have no family history or, you know, their loved ones have passed away and they, they don't have that. And of course, you know, that that happens. Um, but if there is someone that you can talk to that is in those elder generations to get that additional family history information, it's so important for your health care and also really helpful for your your primary care physician, your internist, any of your doctors to help guide, you know, your care. I also think that it's really important to let people know that there are state and federal laws that are in place um, for genetic testing that prevent this information from being used in a discriminatory manner. And so many times, one of the barriers to pursuing this information is fear of genetic discrimination. And the, the laws have been passed um, and have been in place for a long time. The first law was passed in 1996 under HIPAA, the Health Information Protection and Accountability Act. And then the second law was passed in 2008, GINA, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. And these are laws that are not part of the Affordable Health Care Act. And so I think it's really important to get that information out. I also think that, you know, so many times patients are under the impression that genetic testing is very, very expensive and insurance companies won't cover that cover the genetic testing. That's not true. Um, the cost of genetic testing has dropped significantly. Just to kind of give you um, some points of, of comparison, when I first started at the University of Michigan Rogel Cancer Center in 1998, the cost of genetic testing for just BRCA1 and BRCA2 was around $2,700. When we look at genetic testing now, 
we are looking at multiple genes and the out-of-pocket cost if someone had to pay out-of-pocket is $250. So a very significant drop in price. But most insurance companies do cover a large proportion, if not all, of the genetic testing. And that is something that we can help patients understand before the sample is collected. So I just want to, you know, make those points, understand your family history. Um, there are laws preventing, you know, this information from being used in a genetic discrimination. And insurances are covering the cost of genetic testing. And if you did have to pay out of pocket, the cost is much more affordable than in the past. I, I do realize that $250 is still a lot of money, but it's about 10% of what it cost previously. And the cost will probably continue to drop. So those are the main points that I just want to share. Well, a wealth of information. Really appreciate the time. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening. And tell us what you think of this podcast by rating and reviewing us. If you have suggestions for additional topics, you can send them to cancercenter at med.umich.edu or message us on Twitter at umrogocancer. You can continue to explore the three P's of cancer by visiting rogocancercenter.org.